All right, you can take a seat. You can take a seat. If you have a Bible today, I'm going to get you to open with me to John chapter 8, Genesis chapter 3, and Luke chapter 4. Three main scriptures today. Um, And we're going to look at this. And of course, many of you might not know who I am. I'm the Halifax pastor. And just before, uh, just a quick aside, um, just as we, in Halifax right now, one of my major projects is trying to find a space for us as a church. And uh, as a community there, we've been kind of uh, tossed around by COVID. God has provided for us. And, uh, but I really believe that this week specifically is going to be a crucial week for us in this process. So would you pray for us? Um, here's, here's my belief in all this. I'm going to just kind of take you under the, the hood of my mind here for a moment. I believe that there is an address in Halifax with King's Church's name on it already. And we're just going to trust the Lord for him to show that to us, okay? And so that's, that's what we're praying into. Now, some of you are really smart and you're saying, okay, you just told us to go to John and Genesis and Luke. Isn't this a series on Revelation And the answer is, yes, it is. And so we are going to talk a little bit about Revelation today, but we're going to take a quick sidestep and look uh, in depth and insight into a major part or major character that we find in Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Now, if you've been journeying with us, you know, um, and has been taught by Pastor Brent even a few weeks back, that these chapters, Revelation 12 and 13, are the climax of this book. So when we come to Revelation, we don't look at Revelation the way that we look at modern storytelling or modern cinematography or, or the movies where the climax is at the end. Speaking of movies, who goes to movies anymore, right? Um, actually, I shouldn't say that. I, went, I had my first movie a week ago out of the pandemic, and it was Paw Patrol the, Paw Patrol the movie. Yeah. And of, of course, you know, they win and Mayor Humdinger loses, of course, but like... Revelation's not written the same way as our modern movies, where the climax is at the end of the story, but actually we find in the book of Revelation that the climax is in the middle. So when we come to Revelation chapter 12 and 13, what John is trying to communicate to us in this great book is that there are things and stuff that is happening and creatures and all sorts of things that the church should be specifically interested in knowing about and having a good handle on. And today, I want to continue a talk about a character, this kind of malevolent character, this creature that emerges in Revelation 12 and 13. I want to talk to you today about the dragon or the devil. Come on, somebody. Can, yeah, this is going to be, I think this is going to be good today. Now, just a little bit of review. Can someone tell me who is the dragon? Anyone remember this? Anybody? All right, feedback. It's Satan, right? We find this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. John says, the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Now, just real quickly here, um, when, you, when you see the word devil or Satan, this is a title of this creature. It's not his proper name. And there are other places in the scripture you find titles of this creature. There's the devil, there's the Satan, there's the dragon, there's the adversary, uh, there's, there's the serpent of the ancient of days, there's the evil one, there's all of these things. These are all titles, and just a little kind of aside here for you today, um, there is a lot of theologians that believe that this is a subtle dig by Jesus in the New Testament, that they are not even willing to, to, to talk about this creature by his real name. So this is the title. Now, a couple things that we've learned about this dragon or this devil or this Satan. First and foremost, this dragon, the devil, the Satan is real. He is real. Now, maybe you're here today and you're like, really? A devil? 
come on. Seriously? Like, I graduated high school. I know better than that, right? Like, that, that thing that kind of sits on your shoulder. You see that cartoon character, caricature all the time? And maybe you're here today and you're skeptical. Let me just say, I think a lot of people are skeptical around the dragon. And up front, let me, I, I think, like, no judgment if you're skeptical. I understand it's hard, especially in a world where, you know, everything has to be proven only if and if it has empirical, visible, scientific evidence. So I understand it's hard for us to kind of see things that are unseen. But let me just say this, if you're a skeptic today, um, and I think this is a really important qualifier, is that even Jesus, who um, not just Christians but non-Christians alike all believe and all come to the conclusion that Jesus himself is probably the most intelligent. He isn't probably, he is the most intelligent person in the known universe, and even Jesus believed in the devil. And not only that, um, Jesus doesn't believe in the devil. And what I want to show you today, he actually believes that this creature, this dragon, is the most powerful creature in the cosmos. In fact, multiple times in the gospel, we'll see him call the devil the ruler of the worlds. And so today, if there's a good definition of the devil, of what Jesus might consider to be the devil, I would, I would say this. He is an invisible but real intelligence that is behind the evil we find in our soul and our society. He's behind the evil. But what we learn about this dragon is that there's so much more to him that his end game or his, his goal is complete and utter destruction and death at all costs. That's his game. He wants to destroy your life. In fact, I would even say he is a murderer. The devil is okay with having your blood on his hands. He wants to kill you. As the gospel would say, he comes like a thief to kill and to destroy. And he'll do it at, at whatever rate he can. In fact, if we look a little bit further in Revelation chapter 13, there are two other beasts that emerge, and we're not going to talk about this today, but there are these two beasts. There's a beast that comes from under the sea and a beast from the land. And what we discover is that the devil doesn't come at you and I directly, but oftentimes indirectly. And he'll use agents, and he'll use ideologies, and he'll use all sorts of things to kind of come at us and throw some misdirection at us. And what we see is that he'll use these beasts in Revelation chapter 13 as pawns, where he'll work his power through them, and he'll use propaganda all for one sole purpose, to make war with the saints. Now, who are the saints? We're the saints, Right? We're the saints. So I, I, I share all this to tell you, the church, saints today, let me just tell you that the dragon is at war with God. He's at war with his vision for the earth, which includes every person, every creature, every square inch of all of creation. This is our enemy. C.S. Lewis actually said this, and I love what he says. He says, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Maybe you felt it in your bones this past week. You feel it in your soul, your mind, and your body. You feel it in society today. Doesn't it often feel like a war zone? And the reality is, is because maybe it actually is. And I want to remind the saints today, if I can, 
If I can speak to you, the saints today, I want to remind the saints today that the call of Jesus, yes, is first and foremost to follow him. Of course it is. The call is also to take up your cross. He talks about that consistently through the gospel. Yes, of course, we take up the cross. The call is to love God and to love, and to love one another as he loves people. And we're going to do that in just a couple of weeks with Love Week as we express justice and charity to the world around us. We are called to do all those things. But let me remind you today, saints, that we're also called to join a war of heaven's invasion of the earth. And there is a conflict, and there is a fight, and it is against this dragon who wants to destroy us. Now, this is the ends that we find in Revelation. He wants to destroy us. But the question I really want to speak to us today about is how in the world does he go about doing this? What's the means? So the ends is destroy the earth. We get that. But how does he actually go about doing that in our world? Maybe another question I want to ask today is what is his strategy What is his playbook? How many of you know this isn't just a time for school, right? Going back into session. This is a new season, and I don't mean a new season at Starbucks either with pumpkin spice lattes and and apple cider, you know? I I saw, I think I saw something going around this week, like there was a poll of which ones you like. I like them both, just FYI. Um, That season doesn't really matter, but there's a season that I think is really important, and that is the NFL is starting. Hello? Yeah, some of you, like 90% of you are like, I don't care. Um, But you're going to have to live with this for just a moment. But right now, as they prepare for their first week, what are they doing? They're getting their minds ready. They're getting their bodies ready. They're understanding their own playbook, but they're also trying to predict and strategize what the other opponent's playbook is going to be. And in the NFL, it's all guesswork. It is. We're kind of guessing. We're not sure. And sometimes teams get caught off surprise. Let me tell you today that Jesus does not leave us surprised. He tells us what the playbook is. And we're going to see this in John chapter 8 today. And Jesus here in, in the gospel is, is really uh, speaking to uh, the religious complex of the day. He's talking to Pharisees and leaders of the law. And he's having this kind of uh, conversation to them. And, and by the way, as we dive into this, this is Jesus' primary teaching on the dragon or the devil. And so let's look at this today. Verse 31, it says, To the Jews who had believed him... I want you to take that word believe, and I want you to set it aside, because we're going to bring it back here in just a few minutes. To those who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Now, these are people who don't believe in Jesus. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. You are looking for a way to kill me, though, because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. 
we are not illegitimate children, they protested. Now, just real quickly, this phrase right here, we are not illegitimate children, um, we wouldn't know this, but this, this, some scholars believe this is a subtle dig that these guys are putting on Jesus. Meaning they would have known Jesus' upbringing and would have known that he was born to a mom outside of wedlock. And so a better translation for this, truly, is that they are, they are mocking Jesus. They're basically saying to him, we're not, we're not bastard children like you were. That's intense, right? They protested this. They, the only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language, or why is my truth, why is my reality not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Verse 44, this is where it gets intense. You belong to your father, the devil. Top 10 things you don't want to hear Jesus say to you. And you want to carry out your father's desires. So listen, Jesus, here, look, I believe there is a devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar. How many of you know the devil is a liar? And the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Now, what I want you to catch here, and I think you, I think you can see this, because I think we're all intelligent people, because it says it three times here, but the devil's playbook is simply lies. His strategy is to lie. Now, for most of us, we don't really think about fighting the devil this way. I think when we think about like terms and we step into a realm of like spiritual warfare, um, I think a lot of times our minds go to things like demonization or maybe disease or natural disaster or some scary story I saw in the middle of the night or whatever. And let me just say, um, I believe all that is true. I'm not saying it's not true. However, I will say this, and, and just please hear me on this. I think sometimes a lot of things that we put in the box of spiritual warfare can be maybe more Christian paranoia and fear or just strange altogether. Like, I, I have people talk to me all the time. I talked to someone recently, and they're like, I was like, hey, how you doing, man? He's like, man, this week I was at war with the devil. I was like, wow, that's intense, man. The devil? Well, I'm like, well, tell me about it. He's like, well, I was in an argument with my wife, and, you know, and Satan was there. I'm like, okay, first, poor choice of words. You probably shouldn't put wife and devil in the same sentence, right? But my guess is that's probably not the devil. That was probably just you. Or, or I've heard things like, oh, my, my, my tire blew up. It's the devil. No, it's probably a blown tire, right? Now, now I'm, not trying to make, I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody or say anything, but what I'm saying is these things, there's partial truth to all of this. Even things like, you know, people being demonized and natural disasters and sickness and all that kind of stuff. But just listen to me very closely. All of those things are second, third, fourth, fifth tier to what Jesus is trying to communicate to us as, as the dragon's primary means and strategy against you and me and our city and our nation, and that is of lies. That is lies. His signature go-to move every time is to lie. So when we talk about spiritual warfare, I want to say this. Our primary fight against the devil is a fight to believe the truth over lies. This is the battleground 
of what is true, what is not true. What is reality, what is not reality. Further, what is God's ultimate reality? And let me just say this. As we, as we dive into this today, this is really, really hard to do. It really is. Because here's the truth. Here's the truth I want to say about lies. The truth about lies is that lies can seem true. It's just hard to discern. There are lies that often masquerade in truth. In other words, it's quite possible that there are some of us maybe listening online today or even here in this house where we are believing ideas right now that we think are true, but they might actually be lies. And all of us are susceptible to this, even myself. A couple weeks ago, um, we had our annual staff retreat, which is probably my favorite time of the year. And I came into staff retreat, and I was restless, and I was just, I was just, I was just tired and restless. My heart was just racing. And I had somewhere back in the fall, or somewhere back in the spring, I said to myself, I want to land a building for Halifax before staff retreat, right? I want to I get this so that when I can go to staff retreat, I can just relax, and I can just, you know, enjoy my time and all of that. And you know what? We got to staff retreat, and unfortunately, that hadn't happened. And I was, I was coming into staff retreat, and right after staff retreat, I, I paired my vacation to it, and I immediately thought to myself, oh, great, I'm just, just going to be working this whole time, trying to get this thing worked out. And do you know what? As, I was, um, as we were praying, we always end our staff retreat with prayer, and every person gets prayed over. And I, th- I can't remember who it was. I think it was Pastor Brent. He prayed over me a prayer of rest. And in that moment, I realized that that was truth, and I had been believing a lie about rest. You see, the lie I was believing, the subtle lie, is that I had to work for rest. But what God tells us in his word is that we work from rest. And the Lord reminded me of that, and that shifted everything from my vacation and even coming into this week. And it was because I was believing a lie, but I needed the truth. And I tell you all this to say that the devil is a liar, but he's more than a liar. I want to say he's a good liar. Like, he's really good at it. And there are three different types of lies we find in the Bible, and three different types of lies that we often are confronted with. The first lie is the lies that are mostly true. You know, I think I heard it somewhere said a while ago, the best lie is 98% truth. Like, not that I recommend this, but if you want to work on your deception skills, just tell most of the truth, but leave out a certain part of it, right? That's, that's one way the enemy lies to us. The second one is li- lies that are true, but not the whole truth. It's this kind of yes and conversation. Uh, the, best kind of, the best kind of thing I can, I can suggest for this is this is kind of like one side of the same conversation. This is what we're, I think this is kind of like the political, like, you know, culture that we live in today where you go and you listen to one person and, like, and you're listening to their ideas and you're like, oh yeah, that's true, but I don't agree with that. And then you go to someone else and you listen to their, their ideas and you're like, I kind of see your point, but I don't agree with that. That's what I mean by this. It's kind of lies that are true, but they're not the whole truth. And then the third one is, and I think this one is common in our culture today, it's lies that o- oversimplify the complexities of life. It's the yes, but kind of statements that you hear. It's kind of generalizing things. It's the hashtags on Twitter that we just kind of generalize all these things and we just simply say, no, actually life is way more complex than that. I think that is a, a playground for the enemy to, to use 
deception in our minds and our hearts. And this is what happened to the religious Pharisees of the day. Let me repeat that. To the religious people of the day, Jesus is confronting them and he's saying, you've been deceived. You've been deceived to the point that you actually are now doing the work of your father, the dragon or the devil. He's saying, yes, you are biologically Abraham's children, but spiritually you are the seed of the liar instead. You're the seed of the devil. Now, Jesus, what he's doing here, he's actually reflecting on a story um, that many of us would know, and this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So let's go there for just a few minutes today as we get a little bit more insight and understanding as to the, uh, the, the, the dragon's playbook. Um, Let's go here for just a moment. Now, some of you, maybe you're skeptics again. You're like, oh, this is a story with a talking snake. Yeah, I'm going to check out, right? No, don't do that, okay? Because one thing we know, and even, even philosophers of the age out there who are unchristian often look at this story as the origin of evil and good. This is, this is a story, and we believe as Christians this to be a true story. So let's look at this today. Um, of course, many of you will know this story, but look at verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty. That word crafty there means wily or cunning or con artist. He was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? Oh, that's good. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die. Look how quick that was. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Let's pause here for just a moment because I think this is very important for us to understand today. Notice what the serpent comes after Eve with, all right? He does not come after Eve with a stick. He is not coming after Eve with a sword or a machine gun or a predator drone. He's coming after Eve with an idea. Now, what's an idea? Very simply, and I wish I had way more time to talk about this, but an idea is an assumption about reality. It's just an idea. But let me just say this. An idea is the dragon's primary MO. This is what he does against you and me and the society that we live in. And ideas can be good or ideas can be bad. Ideas can be life-giving or ideas can be absolutely dangerous. An obvious one in our history would be Nazism. Nazism is an idea. Did you know that? Uh, genocide is an idea, very dangerous ideas. Secularism in our world today, it's an idea. Democracy is an idea. Happiness is an idea. There are all sorts of ideas. There are thousands of ideas. There's ideas about you. There's ideas about your background. There's ideas about how you spend your money. There's ideas about sexuality. These are all ideas. And if I can even say this, theology is even a collection of ideas about God. But here's the thing about ideas, and this is what we got to catch today, okay? Ideas can be true or they can be untrue. They can be true or they can be a lie. Here's an idea, and, I, and you decide if this is true or a lie. Elvis did not die, but he's still alive, right? Now, you're, now I know you laugh at this, but that's just an idea, right? Now, catch this. This is so important. I think you need to, this is, this is, this is, this is where it really gets good right here. Let me say this. An idea is only an idea 
until you start to internalize it. Okay? Ideas have no power over you or me. It's just an idea until we believe them. And when we say believe, I don't mean just believe with our minds. I also mean that we believe them with our bodies. Like, think about the lie for a moment, the lie of you're unlovable. And maybe that a lie, maybe there's someone here today that feels that lie, and you've been like, yeah, that's me. I I don't feel loved. And who knows where it originated, maybe in your childhood when you were a kid, or maybe over time you just do not see yourself fitting into the rest of the cultural narrative or whatever, but you live, you believe this lie, this thought came into your mind of, I am unlovable. Now we know that in the moment when you hear that, we know that's not true. We know that is a lie because you were made in God's image and you are loved. That's the truth. But here's what happens, and tragically, this is what happens. We start to believe that lie, and then we start to live that lie, and a year, two, three, four, ten years down the road, that lie actually starts to become truth. Because we believe it, not just with our minds, again, but with our bodies as well. Dallas Willard, in his book, um, The Renovation of the Heart, this is what he says about belief. He says, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it, we believe something when, our act, when we act as if it were true. So keep that framework of belief in your mind, and let's go back and look at what happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the, women's, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, listen, watch this, she took some and did what? ate it. She ingested it. She internalized it. She's now taking it in. It's not just an idea. Now I've taken it. I've put it into my, into my mind. I'm putting it into my body. Now she's going to act on it. Where, where do we pick up here? She, she ate it. Then look, she also gave some to her husband. Now she's living it. She's acting it out. And who was with her and he ate it. <laughs> now he's ingesting it. Here's my firm belief. Um, If there was another human being in the garden that day, Adam would have taken the apple and given it to him too. He's now believed it in his mind. He's now living it out. Then their eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves. There they are. They're acting on it again. Together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here. (laughs) You hear the double blame shift? The woman you put here. And I'm like, God, I was just taking a nap. I was innocent, and I woke up, and there she was, right? The woman you put here with me, which, by the way, that is the root cause of so many relationships, people who are unwilling to take ownership in their marriage. It's always blame-shifting. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. You know what that says to us? It says, even ignorance can cause us to fall into sin. Listen it's, listen, it's possible to be a good person with good intentions, with a good heart, and still be deceived. And so, uh, oh, sorry. 
And so he says to the Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, another word for that is war, or battle. I will put a battle between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and hers. And he, singular, this is, this is kind of a prophetic word of the Messiah coming. This is a good Uh, Good Friday sermon right here. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Do you see what is happening here? Now, real quickly, and I'm going to hustle through this because we got a a few minutes to go here. What is the nature? What is the nature of the playbook? This is the enemy's enemy's playbook. I'm going to break it down for us. This is what he does. This is how he does it. First and foremost, he is all about trying to isolate you. He isolates you. The serpent or the devil wants to get you alone. He is hell-bent of of, of separating you from God and God's community as well. He really is. This is why I believe this, and and hear me on this. I I hear this all the time of people saying, you know what? I love Jesus, but I don't want to go to church. Listen, can I just say, I'm just going to say it. That's a lie. That's a lie of the devil. That's a lie of the enemy. He wants to get you alone so that with with you and the voice in your head and his voice. That's what he wants to do. He wants to isolate you, and then he wants to lie. And lies are destructive, deforming ideas. And the the areas that he wants to lie to you are around three major areas, or, or what philosophers or theologians or psychologists would call the three great questions of life. And they are this. The questions every person grapple with is, who is God? Who are we, and what is the good life, or what is happiness? Uh, these are questions around theology, anthropology, or identity, or, and or morality. And here's the thing that we find in Genesis chapter 3. The dragon comes after Eve in all three areas. The first one in verse 5, who is God? He, he confronts who God is. For, verse 5 says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. What is he saying? Translation, God isn't who he claims to be. He's holding out on you. Can I just say that the biggest deception of all are the lies around who God is? But then he lies to her as to who she is and, who, and how she was created. Look at verse 5. You will be like God. Or the, or the text there says you will be God-like. Knowing good for, from evil. Translation, you are not a human being in a, in, in, in a, with a place in the cosmos with intentions. You can ascend and do whatever, you, whatever the heck you want to do. Be who you want to be. You have no limitations. You can transcend and transgress those. You choose your own potential. Go with your guts. Listen to yourself. Do what you want. Does that not sound familiar today? And then, of course, he goes after the good life. Verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good and food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. Translation, don't eat the trees that are in the garden that have God's blessing on them. There's lots of them. But choose the one that you're not supposed to choose. Go after that shiny thing. Do that. Eat that. Do, do, you understand? Go find happiness in those sorts of things. I hope, I'm praying that this strategy is coming into full view. Do you see it? And let me just say, this is not a modern strategy. This is primal and ancient. This stuff is still working today. 
in our highly advanced technological age, and this is working against not only individuals, but it can also come and be naturalized and normalized in cultures and societies today. Now, over time, I believe that the enemy will manifest these lies in a variety of different ways, but he's still, this is still his game plan. Today, we, we, we talk about ideas like secularism. Do you know that secularism is really an affront to the first question of who God is? Because the definition of secularism that, that a lot of people live by today is that we're not actually in rebellion to God. We just want to live our lives as though he's not there. He's not, no. We don't believe he's present. We don't care about what he does. That's, a, that's an assault against who God is. And out of secularism comes another Ism, it's individualism that really confronts the, third, the, the second thing of who we are. It's the, individualism is the idea that I can live all by myself and you don't tell me what to do. And not only do you not tell me what to do, you don't get to judge me. And I just want to say today, if we could just open our eyes and not be so naive to what the enemy is up to in our day. There are so many of these ideas that are floating around, and I believe there are hundreds and thousands of people in our nation and our society who are locked into these, and it has created this vicious cycle of dehumanization and death, and yet, ironically, under the guise of all this, much of this is being toted in front of us as progress. And I want to suggest to you that this isn't progress, but this is a deformation of God's design for us. You want to know his playbook? He isolates and he lies to you to deform you. Now, we're going we're gonna to land this plane here in just a moment. But let me ask you this question. Why this strategy? Why does he do this? Here's what I believe. I believe he isolates and lies because it is the antithesis of how we thrive and flourish in God's reality. So let me say it this way. If isolation and lies, destructive ideas, is the way of deformation, it's because God knows, and what we're called into, is that spirit and truth is the way of transformation. That God transforms us by spirit and truth. Do you know that? We're transformed into the image of Jesus by spirit and truth. What do we mean by spirit? Um, a good simple definition of one I really like is one by a guy by the name of Gordon Fee. He, he talks about the Spirit as God's empowering presence. The Spirit of God being God's empowering presence. What's truth? Simple definition for truth. And again, I wish we had more time to explore this. But truth is reality or that which corresponds with reality. That's what truth is. And we need, in order for us to live healthy, robust lives in the kingdom of God, the vision that God has for you and me and for all of creation, we need both spirit and truth. We need both of them. We, we don't just need spirit and no truth, uh, because with no truth, there's no meaning, right? Uh, if, there, if it was spirit and no truth, it would be like us going into a room and sitting with, a, with another person there, and no one's talking, and if, the, if you don't know them, it's going to be a really awkward day for you, right? But if you know them, yeah, you're going to enjoy their presence, but there's no, there's no communication, there's no truth, there's no flesh to the presence that is there, and no one grows in that. And the same is true. Some people say, well, we, just, we fight the enemy with truth. Yes, we do, but we need spirit and truth. But truth without spirit is just simply cold and cruel. It just is. Listen, I've never heard a single person ever come to me or come to church and say my life was transformed by reading Wikipedia or an encyclopedia. 
I don't even know those exist anymore, right? Why? Because we need the presence. We need the spirit to show us truth. We need someone to pastor us into truth. So we need both spirit and truth. Maybe another way of saying this is we need presence and meaning. Maybe another way to say this is we need relationship and reality. Listen, church, I hope this unlocks something for you. This is why Jesus comes to you and I as a person and a teacher. Why does he do that? He comes to us, the Bible says, he comes, the word was made flesh. He came and dwelt among us. He came and came into the neighborhood. That's presence. That's the spirit, the presence. And then he's a teacher because a teacher is a truth teller. He came as a person with presence and truth. And the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached was repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is repentance? Jesus is saying, change your mind about the ideas and the destructive ideas that you have come to believe. And believe. Believe, not just with your mind, but with your body. This is why he says, come follow me. That there's more than just a mental ascent to who Jesus is. This is action. And then he says, this is what you believe. Believe that the kingdom of God is at hand. What's another definition for the kingdom of God? It is God's reality, the great reality. The supremacy of God's mind and heart for you and I over all of creation. Come and believe that. Change your mind of the ideas that you've been been believing. So why does he come to us as a person and as a truth teller? Because this is where the battleground is. It's in the area of ideas, truth, and lies. Can I I just preach for a moment today? He doesn't come to us as a, as a let's, let's not miss it. Let's not be mistaken here. As the people of his day were mistaken, they thought a Messiah was coming with a sword in his hand. But they missed him because he did come as a warrior, but he had a sword in his mouth. So when today, when we talk about the battle, listen church, saints, hear me today. This is not a battle against a nation. This is not a battle against a pilot or a politician or Caiaphas or some religious guru. It's not a battle against Afghanistan or Democrats or Republicans. This is not against the alt-right or Antifa. This is not against your horrible boss or your ex-wife. This is against, as Paul would say, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the princes and principalities of the air. This is the war. The question is, how do we mitigate this? How do we fight the devil? We fight the devil the way Jesus fights the devil. Look at Luke chapter 4 for just a moment, and I'll be done here in just a minute. Luke chapter 4 is a retelling of Genesis 3, and it's of Jesus, who is the new Adam, the new Eve. He takes our place. He does what we fail at. And I just want to show you this real quickly. Look, look at the language of this text, starting in verse, verse 1. Jesus answered, oh, we're missing, we're missing a text here. I'm going to open it in the Word because this is way too important for us. Oh, it's backwards. Okay. Anyways, the Scripture begins by saying that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And what we discover out in the wilderness in that place is that he's not eating, he's fasting, he's saturating his mind with the truth of God. And then the devil comes to tempt him after his fast 
and he tells, and he tells Jesus, listen, you turn these stones to bread. Look at verse four. This is what Jesus says. The truth, it is written, man should not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse nine, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. I just want you to see this for a moment. Do you notice that Jesus is calm here? He's not shouting. He's an unanxious presence. But what's he doing? He's standing in spirit, in truth. Bible says he goes to the wilderness. You know what the wilderness means or what scholars have come to believe? It's the practice of silence and solitude. He's not eating, he's fasting. What are these? These are all what I would call spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines. And he just stands in this, full of the spirit, full of full of the truth. Listen, if you want to counter the isolation and the lies of the dragon, you must saturate yourself in the presence of God and with his truth. And I think practices, and we talk about practices a lot in this church, of, hey, you need to do this and you need to do that. Why? Because belief is not just with your mind. It's actually with your body. Remember? When you start to live out the truth, it will become truth to you. And, and to believe in Jesus is more than just some mental you know, aspiration to, oh, he's Lord. It is, and that's good, and that's all great, and that's part of it. But it is to trust God with all of your life, with all of your heart, to trust God's voice rather than the voice in your head, rather than the pressures that are narrating and pulsating around us in our culture, and here's the thing, when you disciple like this with Jesus, year after year, the hope is simply this, is that we start to think about God the way Jesus would have thought about God. That we start to think about ourselves and our identity and the people around us the way Jesus would have thought about it. That we think about the good life, that we think about happiness and all of those things the way Jesus would have thought about those things. That, my friends, is spiritual formation. That's transformation. And I, and I know it. We live in this instant society. We want this to happen overnight, but it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. A lot of clothes. I want to ask you this question today as a community, if you're online too. I think this is a really important thing. Simply this. Whose job then is it to cultivate your life and mind around the spirit and truth? Anybody? Anyone else? It's not a trick question. It's ours. It's our job to curate our own thought life. God could do that, but he respects our humanity enough. And he gives us agency, which means he gives us charge over our own minds and our own bodies. Which means that we have the power to make our mind the greatest place of freedom or the greatest place of slavery. 
And I think today, if we're gonna step into this world, listen, I hope you, I hope you, you see the playbook today. But I wanna encourage you today and call us to a new level of maturity and intentionality as a church around the idea of what we allow to come into our minds and our bodies. I remember as a kid, my mom and dad would say, garbage in, garbage out, right? I remember my dad, he would, if I went over to a friend's house to watch a movie, he would uh, ask me to call him and tell him what the movie was, and if it was not good, I would have to come home. I was just really embarrassed then. I'm grateful for today for that. And I want to suggest to you that maybe maturity today might look like, and there's a lot of things, but it might be, it might look like less time on Facebook and Instagram and more time with Jesus. I read a crazy statistic this last week. Average of five hours a day, people are on social media. Five hours. When does anyone work? Honestly. Like, I, I think I heard somewhere, like, the average person works two and a half hours a day. Really? I mean, I work three hours a day, so come on. But the enemy hasn't made easy today. All he needs is free Wi-Fi and a smartphone. And let me say, if this is all you have, is two hours a week to come to church and you step out into that wall of ideas and deception and lies, listen, we don't stand a chance if this is all we do. But I will say this, and no wonder, you, you, you continue to live that lifestyle, that pattern. Well, I go to church and I'll just do the rest of my life. No wonder we find ourselves looking more like secular, progressive East Coast Maritimes timers than the disciples of Jesus. And listen, we're not the victim in this. None of us are. It's our responsibility to turn our attention to him daily and, and, and deeply. And Jesus won't do that for you and I. So we have to do our part, and our part is simply this. Will I open up space to allow the Spirit and truth, His part, to come and, and transform my life? Because I don't know about you, I just can't flip a switch and willpower my way into the life I want to live, or willpower my way to follow Jesus. I can't do that. Uh, my anger issue isn't going to change to, by, from, tomorrow, from today to tomorrow or my porn addiction, or whatever sort of thing that you're, you're confronting right now. I don't have the capacity to willpower on my way to do that, but I do have capacity tomorrow to wake up and posture myself with an open mind and an open heart before the Lord. I do have capacity to make it consistent effort to be at my home church. I do have the capacity to make sure I come to church and be part of the body of Christ and not isolate myself from God and from the people of God. I, listen, I can't flip a switch. Maybe you're a better person than me, but I do have the capacity to fill my mind with the word of God, to choose to read the New Testament in the year, to wake up and pray, to plan a day alone with the Lord, to, to, to make time with him, to do what I have been doing quite, often, uh, quite regularly through this whole season, every night before I go to bed, taking time to examine my day with the Holy Spirit to thank him for the day and to ask him to show me any sort of lie or deception I've believed and to be able to go to bed at night with peace. I can do that. And if you do it long enough, in community and not alone, just watch what the spirit and truth will do. 
So let me ask you today, church, and we're gonna come bring this to a close. How are you arranging your life? Where are you putting your mind and body today? Are you opening up yourself to truth or to lies? Listen, the Lord loves you enough that he's not gonna force you to do this, but he does invite us to do it. And so I entrust you today, and it's an invitation from the Lord today to open your life to more and more spirit and truth today. And I don't know what that looks like for you. I thought we could practice this as we close today. I'm gonna invite you to stand. And this is what I would love for us to do today. I want us to read this, uh, this text. Can everyone see this? And the reason I want us to stand today and I want us to declare this is because, again, we believe not just because we say we believe. We believe with our minds and with our bodies, with our voices. And so today, let's make this the day that we begin or rebegin or recommit our lives to a way of the Spirit and the truth robustly at all of our locations and online. If you're standing at home, please do that. It's, this is important as, as we believe and we give ourselves to the truth. Let's read this together. Can we do it, church, in one voice? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. And all of God's people said,